chapter number four this morning. Romans chapter number four. I do hope you'll be back with us for the evening service. As I said, Brother Brian Butler is scheduled to speak, but he has some complications with the water problem in his house or lines burst. And so uh, he may or may not be able to come. And if he is not here, I have prepared a message for the evening service. And uh, it is keeping with our theme on how to make a difference. And uh, I've asked you to keep that before you. And that's what that banner behind me says, is to make a difference this year. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always be what you've always been. And uh, we want to make a difference so that we'll change. And we can change people. Um, differences make differences. Don't ever forget that. Differences make differences. Same doesn't do anything. You know, if it's the same old, same old, people just look at it and go on. You want to be impact, then you have to make a difference. You, um, you know, it was years ago that uh, in the South they changed road signs because people got so used to them being in certain places, looking certain ways, people didn't pay attention to them. Most of us do now. I don't know the road numbers to get to places. I just know how to get there. Because I don't pay any attention to the road signs. The fact of the matter is that the reason is because they're so commonplace. You know, here we are, there's a road number. And, and you just sort of take it for granted. The fact is, that's the way life is with people. And if you're going to make a difference, you've got to be different. And you don't need to be weird. You don't need to be rude, crude, or none of that. But you just be different. And different in a biblical sense. And that's what the messages are aimed at helping you to be. This morning, however, we're in Romans chapter 4, which we've preached through this great book of the Bible. And this is the, the what we call the constitution of the Christian faith. This is the declaration of independence for every believer. The book of Romans. And it's been a great blessing from my own heart. And I hope it has been to you. And as we often say, of course, the tapes are free if they'll be of help to you. Brother Randy would be glad to get them. If you want to tape at the services, speak to him. And uh, we won't be able to get all the Romans. Um, you know, I don't know how many tapes we keep. 95? We keep 95 back or something. We keep, I think it's about the one rack. So when we start, and it'll take me more than 95 messages to get through these 433 verses that make up the book of Romans. So the fact is that they are... You won't ever get them all, so that wouldn't work. But if you want one specific about passages, as somebody called last week about, see Randy and he can get what we have done. This morning, Romans chapter 4, we begin reading in verse 20. Romans 4, verse 20, we're speaking of Abraham. Paul is using him, as you recall, from the very beginning, chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? That verse 1 of the chapter is telling us that it's Abraham that is a central figure in this chapter. Uh, he discovered this thing about justification by faith. As we mentioned also, verse number 6, Paul mentions David. In verse 6 of chapter 4 said, David also describeth the blessedness of the man with whom God imputeth righteousness without work. So Abraham discovered it. David describes it. And now Paul somehow dissects it, explains it more, further, more fully. And in verse 20, he's still referring to Abraham. He says, He, Abraham, staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, and you ought to underline that, because that includes you and me. It wasn't just for him that God made that declaration. 
he made that declaration for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. It's a simple fact that Abraham was saved by faith through, or was saved by grace through faith, and that faith and act thereof was acknowledged or counted, reckoned to him for righteousness. So the fact is that Abraham and you are saved the exact same way. There are no differences there. The differences in context would be what he believed. In Abraham's case, he was taken out under the stars, and he said, you see all those stars up there? Then I'm going to give you sons that will match that. You'll have more sons than there are stars in the sky. As the Bible said, he believed God. He took God at his word. He said, I believe that. And the Bible says in Genesis 15 that it was accounted to him to righteousness. The ideal, obviously, we can make a case that in those sons or in those stars that represented his offspring, one of them was going to be a savior. And one of those would be the one that would save Abraham, just like the one that was born to Mary would save her. But the fact of the matter is, it was faith that was accounted or accredited to him as righteousness. By cause of his faith, he was accounted righteous. And so that's what the point of this chapter is about. And every Christian in this auditorium ought to get a grip on that. This is the clearest teaching in the whole of the Bible concerning the simplicity of salvation and how to get it. It is by simple, childlike faith in what God says, period. Not works, not ritual, but simple faith in what God says. This passage now deals with Abraham's confidence in God and his faith in him. And uh, I ask you the question in the title of the message, Do you fully know God? Do you fully know God? Someone wrote this. It's in a book that I found in my library. It says, if your faith is weak, you do not know God very well. If your faith is weak, you do not know God very well. If your faith is weak, you do not know God very well. I thought about that several times, and I thought, is that a Bible truth? Is, is, does the Bible testify to that? It does. The passage that you need to write down beside such an ideal is Psalm 9 and verse 10. The psalmist wrote, And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. They that know thy name. And the name of God reveals his character, his power, or everything about him and who he is. And so if you know his name, the psalmist didn't say you might trust him. It said you will trust in him. And so I say to you, the key word in that text of Scripture is know. If they know thy name, do you know God? That's the question. Do you know God fully? And when you put the word fully, that kind of word makes it be a clarification needed or necessary. Knowing him to the degree that he is knowable and is possible to be known by finite beings like you and I. That's what I'm asking. Do you know God as much as God is able to be known by someone of your position, your stature, your educational level, do you know God as much as he can be known? Abraham's faith was strong because it was that he knew God and he knew God's character and he knew his power. And in the context of Romans chapter 4 where we're studying, the key character of God, at least in this context, is this, that God cannot lie. He speaks only the truth, and that's a, a tremendously important thing in the context of Romans chapter 4. I want you to get a grip on that this morning because that's a big deal. 
It is a big deal what Paul wrote in Titus chapter 1 and verse number 2. He said, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. I want you to get a grip on the fact that God cannot lie. And it's that God that Abraham is talking about in chapter 4 verses 20 through 25. This God that cannot lie made some commitments to him. The point would be this. Everyone in this room... Repeating, everyone in this room, repeating, everyone in this room can lie. And probably has. You may have been a baby in a cradle, but if you pretended to be something that you weren't, and you were hungry, or you just want to be picked up, and you cried and screamed, and what? that's lying. <laughs> and most parents would say it's worthy of death, you know. Lord, I kill this baby right now. He's not going to put up with it. The fact of the matter is that there are all kinds of ways that you can lie. But the fact is that everyone in this room can lie. It is within us to lie. It's within you to lie. And if you ever get to the point where you say, oh, no, no, I could never tell a lie. Man, you're fooling yourself. It is within your heart. Your heart is still made of that old depraved nature. And the fact is, it is possible for you to lie. And so what is interesting is, in most cases... People come to trust God the way they trust people. And that's not the way you come to God. You have to understand a vast difference here. The difference between a flea and an elephant. Oh, yea, multiplied many times over. The difference between human beings is they can lie and sometimes will lie to get themselves out of a corner. But God never has lied. Now, this is the point. It makes it easy to have faith in God and hard to trust people. It's hard to trust people. Yeah, I met a young man this last week, sat down in my office. In fact, he was in our parking lot. He met me. We went in my office. We sat down. We talked a while. The more I talked, the more I liked him. The more he told me about himself, the more information he shared. But I liked the guy. I enjoyed the conversation with him. I asked him if he had ever trusted Christ as his Savior, and he had. He told me what he had been doing, where he'd been, where he worked, what he liked, what his hobbies were. He explained himself. The more I heard from him, the more I liked him. But in the back of my mind, the whole time, I'm telling myself, this guy could be lying through his teeth. He could be lying through his teeth because he came here with purpose. He had a plan for coming to see me. And, and he could be lying to me. And so what I'm listening to, I'm saying to myself, I hope this is true. I hope this is true. I hope he's telling me the truth. I'm here to tell you that what makes it exciting about trusting God is he cannot lie. He never has he never will. You can trust him. And you can trust him unequivocally. Every situation, every circumstance, when God speaks, it is as it were already a reality. That's how firm the truth is. And that's what's important about this passage of Scripture. Paul wrote at the Colossian church, he said this, he said, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Why would he tell a bunch of Christians in Colossae, lie not one to another? Because they had been lying one to another. And if you're not careful, you'll lie one to another. There may be husbands in this room who've, who've lied to their wives. There may be women in this room who've lied to their husbands. And exactly what happens in that context is there's a distrust that's built up, and it'll take time to get that thing cleaned back up, and so the trust is expanded again. But you'll never have that problem with God. God has never lied. As I told you last week, there are no such thing as difficulties with God. There's no such thing as trouble with God. 
God doesn't know what trouble is. God has no clue what trouble is because everything looks the same to God. God can fix it. I don't care how bad it's broken. God is able. The fact of the matter is, the second good thing about it, as is Abraham's point in this passage, is that he never lies. So whatever God said, you know 100% it's going to be true. When I was growing up, uh, one lesson early on that my father, especially my father, who uh, hammered into my head and to other parts of my body, uh, would make sure that I told the truth. The point was, you've got to tell the truth. And that was just hit away and away and away. My, and, and boy, let me tell you, I, as a, early on, I thought there were ways to get around that. You know, I thought that if, if my dad told me to do something and I said to my dad, uh, yeah, I wouldn't did that. I did that. I thought, he'll never find out about that, so I can get away with that. All my dad did was go look to see if what I had been ordered to do was done, and it wasn't done. My dad came back and asked me into the bedroom, and my dad then would discipline me for it. I lied to him. And let me tell you something. Early in, I learned that it was not very profitable, and it certainly was more painful to lie. And I learned very quickly, I'm not like God. I found as early on as a kid that there was ways, if you said certain things certain ways, you could get away with things but only to find out my father was wiser than I, and he caught on quickly. Paul the Apostle writing later in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6 and verse number 14, he's getting ready to explain to the Christian about the whole armor of God and saying that we all need to be well equipped when we go out into the world and face what's ahead of us. And just as he gets ready to go into this explanation of this armor, he says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. The very first thing he deals with in getting ready to put on this armor to face the world and all that it offers us is you better put on truth. You girt your loins with truth. That's the first thing you do. Because let me tell you something, as I've said a lot of times from this pulpit before, if you lose people's credibility in you as a person but not telling the truth, you've lost the greatest treasure you possess. Your honesty in being able to tell the truth and that's an interesting thing because uh, you as a believer, and if you're not one, you need to understand something, that the um, world is changing the definition of truth. Let me give you a story. I read this a few days ago, and when I read it, I copied it and cut it out, and uh, it's a rather interesting thing to me. These kind of things interest me greatly. It says there's a little town in Guatemala, in fact, the western highlands of Guatemala, I think it's called Cajul. In, uh, in a sense, it's really a, a nothing kind of place. They have a couple of events a year in this town square. But what was the story says, one day in the autumn of seven, or 1979, another anguished crowd gathered in the town square of Kajul, imploring heaven. They had been summoned to an execution. This was in 1979. Arrested by the army, a group of 23 local guerrillas, and that's not animals, that's uh, men who fought for the people there. These guerrillas had been tortured and were now be, to be punished publicly. The populace was ordered to witness the spectacle. Among the victims was a 16-year-old boy, Petrosinio Minshu, whose family, alerted to his plight, hurried 25 kilometers overnight to be present at the ordeal. The soldiers dragged Petro and the other prisoners over or out or off the uh, army truck commanded to hold themselves in a straight line. Most could barely stand at all. Their torture over several weeks had been brutal, leaving them bloated like bladders. Petro had no fingernails left. They had been pulled from his uh, hands. The soles of his feet had been beaten to pulp. His wounds were oozing with infection. Methodically, it says, the soldiers took scissors and cut off the prisoners' clothes. They then callously explained how each wound had been inflicted on the tortured bodies. 
Finally, the commanding officer ordered his men to soak the prisoners in gasoline, and then he set them afire. The victims died hideously, writhing on the ground, the crowd watching, horrified and enraged, but very helpless. This gruesome description comes at the climax of a book by Petro's 23-year-old sister, I. Rigoberta Minshew. It was published in 1983. It was reprinted endlessly in magazines and recounted dramatically in conferences. The room darkened except for a single spotlight on the young woman who gave her testimony as a witness to a massacre. Based on 18 and a half hours of taped interviews given by Roberta the uh, Minshew, the anthropologist Elizabeth Burgos in Paris, the book propelled the Mayan Guatemalan to an international fame and acclaim, including 14, including 14 honorary doctorates, welcomed receptions from Pope Paul II, and with it, meetings of many heads of states, awards such as the Francis Legion of Honor, and the climax of all was the Nobel Prize for Peace in 1992. With all the modern techniques for fabricating famousness with the singers, and gives some names and so forth and goes into that, it says the left-wing movement were flagging worldwide in 92 following the collapse of the Soviet Union and discrediting of communism. But here was a poster girl who simultaneously fulfilled the dreams of left-wing solidarity movements, the human rights community, and a movement of ethics among women's studies at Western universities known as multiculturalism. Who better to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Columbus' discovery of America and Europe's domination of native people everywhere than to have an uneducated but heroic native American, Americanized woman. But there was only one problem. A small boy in the form of a dogged anthropologist professor at Middlebury College, Vermont, said it and said it well. It just never happened. What they did on closer investigation confirmed by the New York Times showed that Minshew's book should more appropriately have been awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature rather than Peace. Not only did it openly advocate the revolutionary violence, which was odd for the Peace Prize, but it contained huge factual discrepancies and political distortions. And the claim of the eyewitness account include the above story was absolutely bogus. None of it had happened. And yet she received all these honorary degrees, the doctorate degrees. She was resident with the Pope for a while, letting her tell her story over and again. She, the book, this chapter was published in many magazines and so forth. When it came to light that she had absolutely lied about it, it was an interesting thing. People began to go to her aid. A Spanish professor said something to this effect. Whether her book is true or not, I don't care. We should teach our students about the brutality of the Guatemalan military and the United States of America's financing of it. The fact is, none of it happened. The young girl's brother was killed, but not in some kind of defense of his country and not in some kind of fighting against the guerrillas of that community. None of it happened. Absolutely none of it happened. Simple fact was, when it was questioned and she was quizzed, she said, and I quote, This is my truth. Live with it. The point is that truth being redefined. Truth is your truth. Your truth may not be my truth in our present society. 
It may be true for me, and it may have never happened, but if it's true for me, it's my business. It's none of your business. So be careful when you hear that, that truth is that way. It's the same kind of problem that years back, and you may remember this, there was a girl by the name of Twana Brawley. She fabricated a rape charge, and uh, it was in the papers and went all over the country and everything. She was interviewed and all of it. Found out it never happened. Then there was the case of Michael Barnacles. He concocted a story in the Boston Globe. You remember that? And then he come to find out he won some more prizes from it and then come back and confess it never happened. It was a lie. And by the way, he was eventually, I think, let go from Boston Globe. Probably the one that many people remember most was when NBC television staged reports on the exploding General Motors trucks. They later, they later had to confess they put detonators in those trucks when they blew them up on camera so that you'd be able to see it. NBC was red-faced, paid some pretty hefty fines, and GM, of course, made NBC look pretty stupid with their own testing. The point about all that is to say this, that people lie. And I mean they lie in high places. They lie when they write books. They lie when they give interviews. And the interesting thing that to this very day we're living with a lie in regard to the abortion issues in this country. You may or may not know about it, but Norma McCory, that's the Jane Doe or Jane Roe in the Roe versus Wade, she fabricated the story concerning her own rape encouraged by the pro-abortion leaders that was so instrumental in the U.S. Supreme Court in 1973 in the Roe versus Wade. She lied in the first place. Never happened. So there'd never even be a Roe versus Wade if truth were the predominant thing. I also ran across a, an interesting thing. I am no fame friend of, of late night television, but I do know that Jay Leno has a, an evening program or a late night program. He wrote a book. It's called Leading With My Chin. Uh, I haven't read the book and have no intention to doing so. But in that book, I am told, he recounts numerous stories of his as he rises to a young Boston comedian to his present hosting of The Tonight Show as to a successor of legendary Johnny Carson. In the book, and I'll not go through all the things he says here, but what I will tell you is this. He tells an event in the book concerning when he first went on the Dinah Shore show years and years back. And he tells in the book about going on there, and they had to work out a cue so that when he finished his little routine, then the orchestra that was live would begin to play, and he would walk off the stage, and that'd be the end of his presentation. Well, the fact of the matter is that uh, came to a point where Dinah Shore introduced Jay Leno as a young comedian, and some people evidently had heard about him, and they were excited about his being on there. And so the, the crowd began to applaud pretty in you know, upcharge way. They were excited and they were applauding and they just kept on applauding. Well, anyway, he started saying things. And the fact of the matter is the cue that he had given to the orchestra was very simple. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And when they heard that, they, they were to start the music and he would exit the stage. Well, when the crowd just kept on at his introduction saying he just couldn't think of anything else to say. So he said, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And the orchestra started playing and the cue was for him to leave the stage. So he tells that in his book that they, he said, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. And the orchestra played. He walked off behind Dinah Shore and never did a thing. And he writes that in the book and said, that's how I first got introduced to, to my comedian presentation. Fact is, it's an absolute lie. It never happened. First off, people on the Dinah Shore so said it never happened. It's not what happened. He never did that. And some guy found out about it and they began to get out and about. So Leno had to fess up. He said, no, it didn't happen. What happened was I have a friend that it did happen to, and I paid him $1,000 to let me put it in my book. And he said, did he tell you that it didn't happen? They said, no, no, somebody from the Dinah Shore program said it didn't happen. So the fact of the matter is Jay Leno lied.
And I don't have the time, and this message is not about articles, but it is to say that if I had the time, I would point to you that probably nothing in our society has made lying so popular as when a past president got on national television and said to this country, I never did the things I'm charged with. And there's nobody, nobody has done more in the general public to hurt truth than the former president of the United States, Bill Clinton. Nobody. And consequently, what that has done is it has set off a firestorm, as it were, of people having it, finding it easy to lie in, in public and private life. Lying is just seemingly a common thing now. The Supreme Court says that it is perfectly fine for a police officer to tell a individual that they have evidence which, in fact, they don't have. It's perfectly legal in the United States of America for that to happen. It's perfectly proper to lie to get somebody to tell the truth. The fact is that the Supreme Court has a whole list of things that relate to truth, and many of them are things that run contrary to what the Bible would say. That you can lie to get certain things done if, in fact, you find it is in your best interest and the saving more of a reflection on the saving of your life, you're welcome to lie. I say to you that that kind of mentality, when it permeates a society, it gets people where they don't believe anybody. I don't believe everything I read. I don't believe everything I hear on the news. And I don't believe what people tell me always. And I say to you, that's an unfortunate thing because I think people have, and I think to a degree, even in our churches, we have shifted that attitude over to our God. And we sort of fear, is God telling us the truth? Is He really going to do what He says He will do in His Word? I take you back to Romans chapter 4. Our text is built on the honesty and the integrity of God. And that is borne out to us in what the Holy Scriptures say. You need to keep this before you with all that I've just told you. How refreshing it is to know that there is one book and there is one God that deals in nothing but truth. And in that you can take great confidence. Look, if you would, at verse number 21 this morning. In verse number 21, Paul writing concerning Abraham says, And Abraham being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Abraham was fully persuaded because God was absolutely trustworthy. Abraham knew God well enough to know that what God said he could depend on. Abraham was totally convinced, having known God as he did, what God promised that he was able to perform. And I say to you, the power to perform is the issue on the table. That is the issue. Anybody can promise anything, and you just listen to the politicians who are trying to run for the presidency of the United States. Anybody will promise anything to get what they want. The issue, though, is can they perform? Can they put back, can they, in, in fact, bring to the table everything they say they can? And the point made about Abraham's case was he knew God could. What God promised, God could perform. And Noah, for instance, believed God when he was commanded to build that ark, though he had never seen a raindrop. Though he did not have the local weather channels with their radar system and say, hey, rain is on the way, build you an ark. No, what would happen? God had said, rain is on the way, build the ark. And that's exactly what Noah did. He believed God. He was fully persuaded. He knew God could not lie. And God said it was going to rain. And therefore, Noah believed him. And Noah acted upon that faith. The Virgin Mary 
A young Jewish girl believed God when she was told as a virgin, having never known a man, that she would give birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Mary was fully persuaded. Luke chapter 1 says this, For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. A God who can call the things out of nothing was the God who said that my son will be born of a virgin. And he made it possible for Mary to give birth to this son, having never known a man. She was fully persuaded. Faith, you see, is only as strong as the object. And if that object that you have your faith in is the God of creation, then I say to you, there is nothing that is not possible for him to accommodate. There's a passage of scripture I ran across this week, and it's a great one. It's in Psalm 115. Let me read it to you. Psalm 115. Psalm 115 says this. Verse number one. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name, give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Verse number two, he says, Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? Verse three, watch this carefully. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And by the way, he not only he hath done, but he can do. He can do whatever he pleases. Verse 4, their idols are silver and gold and the work of, of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. They have uh, ears or eyes they have, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. Verse 7, they have hands, but they handle not. Feet they have, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. Verse 8, that, that they that make them are like unto them. So it is everyone that trusteth in them. His point is, in this passage of Scripture, is saying very clearly, with the God of heaven, anything is possible. God can do anything He will. But the flip side of that is, the people who have these gods that have been made by man can't do any more than a man can do. These gods cannot do a single thing that a man can do. They're just like man. They're inept and unable. Verse number 22, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 22, not only is he fully persuaded that God that promised was able to perform, verse 22 says, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. In response to Abraham's faith in God, and God in this case being that he could do anything, and Abraham was convinced of that, that God promised he was able to perform, then God imputed to him righteousness. By the way, don't forget, and you ought to make know this in, in your Bible in Romans 4, that that's the whole crux of this passage. It's the key to the understanding of chapter 4, because three or four times it's mentioned. Look at verse number 3, Romans 4 and verse 3. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, it was counted unto him for righteousness. Look at verse number 5. He says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Then verse 9, he says, Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. And then in verse number 22, where we are, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. The point made is that this righteousness did not come by any other means except by Abraham believing God. And Abraham believed God because God never lied. And God was able, had the ability, had the power to perform every single thing that he said he would do. 
The bottom line is, did Abraham get anything at all in his relationship with God because of his works or rituals? Absolutely not. Not a single thing. He got his righteous standing before God by simple faith in God. By the way, this is, I believe, one of the great faith chapters. We talk about Hebrews being that, but this is too. In this passage of Scripture, the word faith and the word believe show up no less than 16 times in 25 verses. And now Paul brings the entire passage, as it were, into focus. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 23. In verse 23, he says, Now, as if to say, okay, I've spoken to you 22 verses about this great truth. Now... Here's what I want you to understand. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Verse number 23 and verse 24, But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. This is Paul's logic and the point that he makes here. God is but one way of saving men, women, boys, and girls in every single age, and it is by faith in God. This text assures that no part of the scripture was given only for the time in which it was written. That means that as Paul writes over in Romans chapter 15 in verse number 4, he says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Whatever was written over there was written for us right here, right now. And this is a classic passage to show and to point that out. Verse 23, 24 says, It was not that God spoke that to Abraham just for Abraham's sake. He spoke it for our sake. He wanted us to understand that just as Abraham is saved by faith, we are saved by faith. There is no difference. There's no change in the program. It's all the same. And then something else in that little phrase, for us also. I want you to see that in verse 24, there is a stipulation and the only stipulation that applies to the whole process. Verse 24, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if, and he ought to circle it, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. That's the only stipulation about a person being in a right standing with God, if we believe. And the consequence of that, verse number 25, gives you the two aspects of what he wants you and you should believe. Look at verse 25. Who was delivered for our offenses. The Greek grammar would set it forth in a way that it would say that he was handed over as a criminal. Jesus Christ was delivered for our offenses. For the wrongs that we committed for the sin in our own heart, he was delivered. And the phrase would be handed over for someone else's guilt. I would mention to you that it was God the Father who handed him over. It was not any of these other theories that carry out about the Lord's death. Jesus Christ was handed over by the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son is not only that he sent him to this earth, but he handed him over when it was time for him to be crucified as a sacrifice for man's sin. And it's important to understand that. Something else to understand in the Bible makes this clear. In Isaiah chapter number 53 and verse number 10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord, that's the Lord Jehovah, to bruise him. He had put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord Jehovah shall prosper in his hand. That passage says it pleased the Father that he literally bruised the Son. And the New Testament bears out the same thing. In the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, 
being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You must understand, it was men who crucified him, but it was the Father who delivered him. And that's an exceedingly important point in the principle of our salvation. God the Father sent His Son to die. He didn't send His Son to come down here to be a good teacher. He didn't send His Son down here to perform a lot of miracles just for the sake of miracles. He sent His Son here to die. And it was the Father who declared that He would deliver Him. And it's important for you to grasp that because that's what verse 25 is saying. Who was delivered for our offenses. Then the latter part of verse 25 is the second aspect. And it says, and was raised again for our justification. I think that the language of the verse might make you think that he's saying that in order for you to have justification, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Now, there's a certain element of truth in that, but that's not what it's meaning or implying. What it's meaning and implying here is that this raising again was to verify justification. It was raised because of justification. For there to be a justification, Jesus Christ not only had to die for our sins, but the Father had to accept His sacrifice. And when Jesus Christ died and was placed in the tomb, my own perception of the thing was that probably floating around in the minds of men and people who knew the story was the question, you think the Father will accept the sacrifice of the Son? Well, how will we know? How would you know that God accepted it? There's no necessarily, they didn't have the scriptures as we do. They couldn't read another passage and say God accepted it and Jesus is approved. They didn't have that. So how would they know that God and the Father had accepted the death of the Son? I submit to you there's only one way. Until and unless Jesus Christ rose from the dead, they never know. They'd have no clue that it was an accepted sacrifice. And so what the resurrection says is to put the cap on justification to say that God the Father had accepted the sacrifice of the Son. He raised His Son just as surely as He delivered Him. He delivered Him to die on the cross for our offenses, but He raised Him up to verify that that justification or your faith in God was, was adequate and was right. And to prove it, He raised Him from the dead. And he said, now there's no more doubts. There's no more questions that I've accepted the sacrifice of my son for the salvation of mankind. I called your attention in closing to this one thing, though. And it's the crucial point. And that's why it's coming right at the end of the chapter. It's that if in verse number 24. That one stipulation. If you're here this morning and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then I say to you this morning, it's important for you to understand you'll never get to heaven by joining a church, being baptized, being a good person. You can work at being the best person in Johnson County or any surrounding county, and you'll still not get to heaven. Getting to heaven is not a part of your works. Getting to heaven is based on Christ's work for you. And what it says is, if you believe on Him that raised up Jesus from the dead, the technicality of the text says you believe on God. You believe on the Father. If you believe the Father raised up the Lord Jesus from the grave, you can be saved. But you have to believe on Him. The same God that Abraham believed in Genesis chapter 15, you have to believe in Romans chapter 4, verse number 24. If we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And I say to you what the importance here is that this person who makes this statement... This declaration and this absolute essential move on our part, the one who did that is God who cannot lie. So God who cannot lie says, if you want to be right with me, then here's what you've got to believe. You've got to believe me and what I've said concerning in relationship to my son. If you believe me, 
then I can say to you, you can be saved. Romans 10, later when we get over to Romans 10, we'll state it and state it probably more in a more familiar way. You've heard it more often there. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The emphasis is not believing on Jesus Christ. The emphasis is on believing on God and saying, God, I do believe you. I believe that you could raise your son from the dead, and you did raise him from the dead. I believe that. The fact is, it's not Jesus Christ that's a focal point that we sometimes will shift it away from the Father. There is without a doubt an emphasis of the Scriptures of believing Jesus. But the text of Romans chapter 4 is believe on him that raised up Jesus from the dead. And Romans chapter 10 verse 9, believe on God that raised his son from the dead. That's where he wants your faith. And that's what the scriptures emphasize. Faith or believing is simply taking God at his word. And I remind you that God cannot lie. So whatever he said, he can be trusted to fulfill. Now this morning in this service, I question how well do you know God? Do you know him well? Do you have a relationship with Him on an ongoing basis? Is there a thing that uh, draws you to the Scriptures day by day? Are you in them day by day? Do you read God's Word every day? You'll never get to know God apart from getting to know His Word because that's where He revealed Himself. And there's a tendency on our part to somehow just read a little bit of the Bible or come to Sunday school or come to worship service or Sunday evening and we hear some things about God and we, we think we really know Him. Well, the fact of the matter is, it takes a lifetime for us to even think we get to know Him. I know people who've lived to their 90s and really came to know the Lord early in their life, maybe in their 20s. And they, all their lives, they worked in the ministry, were in church, were in the Word. And I've heard them breathe these words toward the end of their life. I still don't feel like I know Him the way I want to know Him. There's a relationship to be had here. It begins by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and believing God that sent Him. That's where it starts. So the question is, if, if you are in the service today without Christ, let me tell you how to come to know Him. You do exactly what Romans 10, 9 says. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Confess is a Greek word that says, say the same thing about Christ that God said about Christ. Well, what did He say? He said He sent Him to die for our sins. That's what He said. So that intimates and it incorporates the idea that I must be a sinner. If He died for me, then I must be a sinner because that's who He came to die for. So it's acknowledging I am a sinner. Two, it's acknowledging that what Christ did on the cross was sufficient. It means you don't have to add to it. You don't have to keep up your salvation. You trust Christ as Savior, and what Christ did on the cross was sufficient, and He doesn't need any help from you. Thirdly, it says, then you leave the principle of, uh, of just trusting for salvation, and you live your life by faith. That is, the just shall live by faith. It is not a life that starts in faith and then ends with works to keep it. It is a life that starts in faith and continues in faith, believing God day in and day out. I'm still convinced that many reasons of Christian people are not victorious in many of the situations of life is because they got the idea you start by faith, but you live it by works. That's not true. You continue to take God at His word day in and day out. And when you do that... There's a process of grow, growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord that changes us from glory unto glory. The question is, do you know God? Do you know God in a sense of redemption and salvation? Do you know God in the day-to-day -day relationship with Him that you have in His Word? Do you know God so well that it won't take you 15 minutes for you to introduce yourself if you have a crisis in your home that you'll have to spend 15 minutes to identify who you are and how, what reason it is that you haven't been talking to Him lately? 
Was your relationship one that is ongoing, continuous, and even as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, you pray without ceasing. It's something that continuously falls from your lips in a relationship with a God that's to be known. How well do you know God? Do you know God fully? If you're here without Him today, I invite you to come to Him in simple childlike faith. And I'll assure you, He who cannot lie will save you in a heartbeat. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the truth that the Scripture set before us. And thank You for the great truth of the integrity that You have, Father. And that is that You cannot lie. And You would not lie if You could. You're a holy God. And I thank you so very much this morning for this truth that you relate to us in Romans chapter 4. And I ask you now to drive this truth home to our hearts. And in so many cases, it's such a tendency for us to doubt people. And in so doing, we tend to place that same kind of doubt upon you, Father, because we have a hard time transferring a trust from people to you. And so many times people lie. They lie in print. They lie in interviews of the media. They lie in spoken word. They lie in so many ways. And so help us not, I pray, help us not to put you and cast you in that same negative light. Help us to be constantly reminded that the God that cannot lie promised eternal life to those who would believe. And help us this morning to be certain about that. So Father, right now, I pray you'll speak to hearts of men, women, boys and girls in this room. Any who do not know you as Savior, who have never believed on you in simple childlike faith, as we sing the invitation in the song, Just As I Am, I pray that they may come to know you. And for Christians in this room who may have sinned against you, and they may need to address that and confess that, to speak the same thing about it as you would say, I pray you'll help them to do that, that their hearts may be clean and pure, and they may walk out of this place this morning in a brand new way. Speak to our hearts and as we wait before you, help us to be obedient to that which we have heard and which you have written. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? 282. Just as I am, as we sing the first stanza, if God has spoken to your heart, we invite you to come this morning. If you do not know Christ as Savior, we invite you to come. Allow someone to take a Bible and show you how you can be saved. If you are saved and God's spoken to your heart about another matter that you need to address, then this is the time we'd encourage you to address it. Not later, but now so easy to put off until tomorrow what we ought to do today. And I say to you that this is the place for such decisions to be made. So if God has spoken, as we sing, 282, you obey the Lord. Would you? As we sing, please. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Let's sing the second stanza. God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come?
has spoken to your heart, would you come? bow your heads with me, please. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your goodness and your grace, and we're thankful for your integrity, and thank you that you never lie. What a blessing it is, and how really easy it is to trust someone who has never lied, who has never been fast and loose with the truth, but always tells the truth, always. Father, thank you for such honorable position that you hold, what's honorable character that you possess. And thank you, Father, that you hold this up for us, that we might be equally as honorable. And so I pray today that you may cause us to understand overwhelming truth that Abraham trusted you so fully and completely. He knew you, and he knew you'd never lie to him. Father, help us to come to that same conclusion, that we can rely completely, 100% upon what you say, knowing that you're not only someone who promises but you're someone who promises and performs. So I pray you bless today and help us to take this as our own example. Help us not to promise what we cannot perform. Help us not to say that which we cannot follow through on. Help us to keep our word. Help us to realize that our word is a tremendously important thing that you've given us to speak and then back up. And help us, I pray, to bear great testimony for you as believers before a lost and dying world world that we keep our word just like you do and god forgive us for all the past of as churches and bible believing churches that so often have had testimonies that they did not keep their word so father i pray help us to see the importance of it and help us to realize that even our own salvation hinges upon your honesty and your integrity and your truthfulness and it may be that other people's lives would be affected by the negative image that a christian would cast by not telling the truth. So help us to see today the importance of this great character of yourself. Guide and direct now as we leave this place. Thank you for all who have attended, our guests, our visitors. Thank you for their coming. Please bless them for having done so. And for our members, I pray thank you for their faithfulness and give them all a safe trip home into their places of shelter and pray that you'll bring us back to the evening service. Bless the communion service tonight and then bless the preaching of your word. May it bring forth fruit to your honor and to your glory. Pray it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.